Right, welcome back uh, to part three. We've had uh, practice, a bit of theory, and now we're going to talk about policy and uh, concretely about what, what could be done to urge philosophy to become part of the school life of our children in this country. Right, and uh, introducing, uh, chairing this session is Maurice Fraser. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you, Simon. Well, I think it's at my only line, um, so uh, there's probably not much I need to do. But it seems to me this is a good sort of logical progression, having started uh, with, uh, like, tales from the coal face, how to actually make this happen um, at grassroots level. That was a great session. Um, and, and the second session I found just as uh, inspirational. What is the purpose of all this? Um, so, so far, so good. Um, I think the idea of the policy of sort of moving, if you like, miss, onto the most macro level for this last session is... is uh, Obviously, to look at the kind of policy instruments that, uh, uh, that could be needed uh, to uh, encourage um, the teaching of philosophy uh, in schools. But I think, uh, obviously, within the parameters, certain parameters which the national curriculum inevitably imposes. Uh, but on top of that, um, to actually consider more widely the role of how, how, how to raise the profile of philosophy within the public space and how to improve public understanding uh, of the value of philosophy, both as an inquiry for its own sake, and for its ability to develop cognitive and critical skills, which will also serve, um, serve the child, uh, ultimately the grown-up, uh, well in whatever calling in life they find themselves in, and certainly from the point of view at school level of also of other disciplines, other subjects the child might be following. So I think there's many aspects uh, to, that we'll want to touch on in our 50-55 uh, minutes that are available. We'll stop just before 8 o'clock. Uh, without further ado, and uh, I will avoid the long introductions, uh, they're all there. I'm going to ask uh, Philip, Jonathan and John to speak in the order in which they're, they're sitting. Um, as you know, it's 10 minutes each, um, and then we'll have uh, hopefully about 20 minutes of questions. So, thank you. I, I guess that's me then. Yeah, <laughs> Philip, if you like. Um, hello. Gosh, the light shines right in your eyes. Um, hello. Um, oh, here is better. Okay, good. I'm broadly in favour of teaching um, philosophy uh, to children. Primarily because I think in, in some ways it's perhaps the most important skill. And the reason I've progressively um, and not aggressively come to this conclusion is, is oddly mostly through my work um, in public policy now. We at Res Publica have come up with, I don't know, 15 policy papers now, the majority of which have been adopted. And the ones that haven't been adopted by the government have been adopted by the Labour Party. So it's quite exciting. Um, and I think uh, the reason for this is, I mean, I wrote a book called Red Tory, so obviously I'm complicating matters. Morris Glassman on the left, I, in response to Red Tory, developed Blue Labour. And basically, the tool that allows you to do this is, is, is to go to first principles. You just go to first principles and you bypass all the historical stuff that's happened. Not that you can bypass history, don't worry. But you can, in some conceptual sense, suspend the, the present sort of inferences that have derived from those originary principles. And then you go to your first principles and you try to mirror the empirical world that we find ourselves in with those originary principles. And if you do that, you engender a whole new set of practices and a whole new set of policies that nobody hitherto thought could possibly could be conservative or indeed labour. And the reason you can then sustain the idea that they are genuinely conservative is they're founded on 
first principles. And being founded on first principles, you defend them as such. And what's interesting is most people in the policy and political world do not think from first principles. It's not a criticism of them, it's just a description, which I suppose is a criticism. But <laughs> because they don't think from first principles, what happens is they fetishize, they become ideologues. They fetishize um, practices as, in some sense, emblematic of a core set of values that they never, ever, ever interrogate. And policy renewal or, or ideas renewal is quite simply first principles with, with the new empirical data, if you will. Uh, and as such, I think that's the most, I did the most ineffective degrees you could possibly imagine. Not only did I do philosophy, I also did theology, which is no doubt even worse. Um, and I found it the most superb practice for politics. Because not only do you all argue from first principles, philosophy, though most modern philosophers kind of don't do philosophy in my view, which I'll get onto in a second. They just stay mired in scepticism, like in Plato's Sophist, but never reach the end. But more of that later. But what's very exciting about actually doing theology is theology is, is the discipline that selects the first principles and tries to discern which first principles are most evident <coughs> and why. So paradoxically, as it were, my own background is not only doing inference from first principles, but somehow being relativist about which you choose or why they're there, but also having a discipline of which first principles you might select and why. And as a result, it's just great. You can do, you can do politics in a very inspiring and open way, and also you can open it to others, because paradoxically, by going to first principles, it's not some awful elitist exclusive act. It's a genuinely, properly democratic act, because everybody participates in them. And if you can reveal that to people, they can share in it and seek to exemplify it better than you. Now, what I, and I think this is hugely, hugely important. And one of the reasons I think it's hugely important is I hire people, and I hire lots of people, and I see other people who hire people. And I talk to people who hire people, and I read, um, I read faxes from the CBI. Now, you might think that that's nothing to do with very much. But what's interesting, I said it on the radio, so apologies if I say it again. Every year, whatever, whenever the A-level grades double and treble, and everyone gets 27 A's, and genetically proves their worth back to the 12th generation. The CBI nonetheless, unremittingly, publishes the same facts. And that fact says our students can't, don't have basic skills, they, don't, they can't do teamwork, and they can't do problem solving. Now, largely speaking, I agree with the CBI. I think the CBI is correct. I think our education system is profoundly, deeply flawed. It's still based in the two cultures, the Matthew Arnold thesis. We get arts graduates who are beautiful in the sense they can write beautifully. I'm not talking about physical aesthetics. I mean they understand art, they can write brilliantly, but they're terrified of maths, they're terrified of numbers. They can't interrogate any of that dimension of reality. Then we get maths graduates who quite simply can't argue for anything. They don't know how to argue, they don't know how to interrogate. And these are our people and they're wholly unsuited for the modern world. And the modern world is an integration of both of these art forms. And until we can produce that, we're not going to produce people who are any good at succeeding in the modern world. So what's interesting is looking at these skills, and this is very much, I think, 
very much part of what's wrong with our culture. We specialise too early. Part of the reason we specialise too early is we have a contempt for generalism. And the contempt for generalism often is driven by university departments. So people don't come prepared to do philosophy or people don't come prepared to do physics. Well, nor should they. Because actually, the skills we need in our society are, first of all, the universal skills. Because with the universal skills, you can always develop particular skills. But if you only have particular skills, you can't develop universal skills. So it seems to me that philosophy is the most universal of the universal skills. Now, in part, you can half share in philosophy in almost every discipline, because every discipline has essentially premises that are foundational, and interrogating those foundational premises makes you a philosopher. In physics, why are constants constant, etc., etc. But philosophy and the object of philosophy is different. And for me, the object of philosophy is objectivity. Now, but when I say objectivity, you all immediately think fascist, of the right. Objectivity is dreadful. I've read, read French philosophy. I know what people who believe in presence do. But, <coughs> but this is nonsense. There is no world-class philosopher in the canon who didn't move through skepticism to some form of certainty. The whole of the Platonic tradition, the Socratic tradition, is about showing you it's mimetic, it's about anamimesis, it's about recovering what you already know. It's all about truth, and it's in truth, and it's about truth. Now, what I think is so disturbing about much modern philosophy or much modern culture, I think that's more accurate, is we all think relativism is true. And we think nothing's subjective except the claim nothing is objective. Now, we'll all laugh at that and notice you didn't. Therefore, it's more <laughs> worrying than I thought. Um, because, and I have taught literally generation after generation after generation of students at every single level who come to me thinking nothing's true except their own perceptions, which are cl clearly, self-evidently, absolute. And as a result, we seem, in my view, we get culture wrong, we get life wrong. And it seems to me that we should take the very obvious lessons from our great tradition, that every one of our great philosophers, however you construct the canon, all believed in truth, all believed we shared in objectivity in whatever way. Even Hume wasn't a skeptic or a relativist. He constructed a different form of pattern and discernment on the basis of habitus. So I think that what worries me about when we say teach philosophy is most people assume it will be what a first-year degree is. Most people go into university hoping to discover the truth, and they come out thinking there's no such thing as truth. And then they go through the world, and they're confronted by all manner of problems that they can't, in, in some sense, tackle. And I think that, that what worries me about our culture at the moment is most of our educational institutions educate people into uncertainty. They educate people into sophistry. And I think if we are going to do philosophy for children, which I think we should do, I think one of the great merits for me is people who do philosophy longer and actually won't sort of abort after at the age of 21, where they sort of have either read bad English pragmatic philosophy or really bad French philosophy and emerge thinking relativism is somehow the basis for ethical and political social justice. As such, I think that the, the, the key merits in terms of public policy for doing philosophy are essentially it will make us critical. It will make and it will open us up to the objective world in which we all inhabit and we all live and it will create the conditions for understanding other conceptual schemes and other cultures, not in order to have some awful philosophy of the other but in order to have some account of that which we share and that which we can build on. 
Now, that's why I support philosophy for children. Now, what's interesting is at what stage we do philosophy for children. I think it's probably quite dangerous to let sort of modern relativists at children before the age of 11. The last thing we want to do with children who, whose thinking begins in wonder, who think they're in an objective universe and ask very, very philosophical questions, is to confront them with middle-class white scepticism. You know, we, I think that would be a disaster. So I think sort of what's interesting is thinking about kids before they're 11 who are sort of in a strange and magical relationship with certainty, and if we think philosophy, theology, myth, they're all very much part of the children's worldview, and they're intermingled with each other. And actually, if we believe the Greeks, and I think we should, it all begins with Talmud saying, with wonder. And we need a different form of practices for teaching kids like that. I think it's fine to begin with scepticism, but let's begin with scepticism about scepticism once kids are over 11 and in secondary school. And I begin much earlier, because then it would start to teach uh, children actually the truth and the objectivity, albeit in whatever manner, is all around them. As such, I think we might start to produce children who can think beyond conceptual schemes, who can think beyond received kind of rhetoric and frameworks and start to think critically about the basis of their own lives and the lives of others and the common goods. And if we can then think in that way, in that manner, then citizenship lessons might not be boring descriptions of what people with different skin colours and different hats do. I remember the, the absolute horror of liberal education in religion. There's almost nothing worse I've ever seen, and it's ubiquitous. And essentially consisted in children colouring in pictures of Sikhs or Hindus or Jewish people describing what they did. And the fundamental error in that approach to religion was that all religion is an argument. All religions are an argument about the nature of the universal, the shape of the universal, and how human beings know the universal and what they should do in, in that regard. How it was taught was all religions are subjective, nobody can know anything about God, and these are just odd practices done by foreigners, because good British people know that belief is fascism, and it's very important not to have any belief whatsoever. So I think it's very important not to, not to repeat the errors of religious studies instruction in how we teach philosophy. And I think in terms of practical policy issues, it'd be very interesting to think about when we introduce scepticism and how we do it, and how, and I think, it's imperative we talk about it as a discernment of, of objectivity without, of course, precluding the shape and nature of that. And I think if we do that, then I think we can do a great deal of good in our education system. We can stop its, its rot into a culture that is essentially not in relationship to the truth. And so much of our cultural studies and our cultural practices do not think they're in relationship to the truth, therefore they don't matter. And if we don't think our cultural practices, I realise I have to end, don't worry. Um, time's relative. No. Um, if our cultural practices aren't in relationship to the truth or values, then values become subjective and truth just becomes this scientific practice that you have. <coughs> and most of the current crises that we're in are as a result of that belief. It can't, economics is separate from value. We know it's positivistic structure. It can, it can run independently of values that are always subjective. And so I think, oddly, it's absolutely imperative to start to develop a new culture about the, about the structures in which we inculpably inc are embedded and about what it is to flourish within those structures and how we might flourish. And to that extent, I would like to teach philosophy for children. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.
Well, Philip, thank you for having got us off to a cracking start. Um, uh, there's obviously a whole discussion to be had about reconciling that sensitivity to culture and context with, uh, and how to do that whilst avoiding relativism, but that's a, that's a, that's a whole other discussion. But thank you very much for such a provocative uh, and challenging um, springboard for our discussion. Uh, Jonathan Douglas is uh, Director of the National Literacy Trust. He's going to talk to us for 10 minutes. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I feel guilty already for stopping that because it was so fantastic. Um, as well as director of the National Literacy Trust, I'm also governor of a primary school in Lewisham. And that primary school was lucky enough to be part of the, um, the, the, the philosophy shop work. And what was extraordinary about that, it's a Catholic primary school. And even though I'm not supposed to be talking about this, actually at the governor level, we all suddenly got into this conversation about relativism and, and objectivism and how you could be a Catholic school and teach questioning. Very exciting. Anyway, what I have been asked to talk about, though, is... Um, about literacy and um, philosophy for children. And I, I, I do want to talk about my experience as a governor at that school because it, 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 did, it taught me a lot. Um, I, mean, I want to talk about reading as the central act of literacy. Um, reading, obviously, is a dynamic activity. It changes. It is changing. It will always continue to change. Um, and philosophy has narrated that change. Um, Socrates, you know, the moment in which um, the, 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 the literacy became a written um, um, activity. You know, Socrates hated that moment. He saw the, the act of writing as the killing of words. Augustine documented the moment when reading became a silent activity, and when he encountered in the Confessions St. Ambrose reading silently for the first time. Extraordinary moment, um, and wondered what on earth was going on. So re reading has changed and will continue to change. It's a dynamic and it's a changeable concept. Um, and I think what I got from seeing the philosophy shop working in the school of which I'm involved in was a sense that actually the changing nature of reading as it is at the moment in our schools can benefit profoundly from an association with a philosophical method. Now, the act of reading requires a very simple description, two functions, a function of decoding and a function of comprehension. And that function of comprehension is changing in a very, very radical way at the moment. You know, the, 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 those changes which I described, the, the, kind of the moment in which um, literacy became a written activity, the moment at which reading became a silent activity, was part of a great narrative of change that's determined what literacy has been in societies like ours over the past millennia. And that dynamic, that trajectory, has been one of personalisation. Reading has gone from being a public concept where the lector read aloud. Just imagine the ancient libraries of a place like Alexandria. Nobody read silently, everybody read aloud. Reading, <laughs> reading was a public activity. Obviously, liturgical practice in churches, in mosques, in wherever, continue that. But you know, reading was, a, and it was it increasingly became um, um, uh, personal. The iconography of reading is an extraordinary thing. When you think about the kind of great symbols of reading, again, they increasingly become personal. I, I don't know how many of you know the, the, the tomb of Eleanor of Aquitaine. She's lying there next to Henry II, who's obviously a bombastic plantagenist. Um, and what's she doing? She's holding her book. So this, this moment when actually reading was finally being seen as the kind of thing which you might want to do if you were a discontented wife for all eternity next to your awful husband. Um, so <laughs> the, the, over the centuries, reading became increasing private. Now, what's happening at the moment is the opposite. Technology in particular is driving a massive change in reading and it's going from that personal characteristic to a social and to um, an interactive characteristic. Very, very important. And there are two 
essential characteristics of that change which are currently going on and which teachers and which everybody who's interested in getting young people reading more and reading better are wrapping their heads around. The first of those is that what has been referred to in the past as critical literacy is becoming part of core literacy. What I mean by that is that, I mean, li literacy is one of those awful words. It, it's applied frequently as a metaphor. You know, I endlessly get invited to talk about health literacy, spiritual literacy, all this kind of thing. That's not literacy. And for a long time, there's been a concept that actually critical literacy has been another metaphor. But actually, it is changing, and it's changing very, very rapidly. The concept of authority, going back to that concept, you know, what reading is in terms of comprehension, the concept of authority and understanding the veracity of your reading is becoming a core activity of the reading action now. No longer is simple publication seen as the basic act of validity. Um, two really good examples of this. First of all, my mum went on the internet for the first time last year and came up... I don't know how many of you have Googled the words French military victories... <laughs> but there is a spoof page which comes up, the first thing I Google, and it says, you cannot mean French military victories. Please re-enter as French military defeats. And my mother said, aha, I told you so. You see? Now, of course, that, there are all sorts of ways, of, of, for, for somebody who was used to using the internet, of discerning the fact that this was not. But she didn't have, her critical literacy skills were not those which you needed to decipher that. Her critical literacy skills were those of the person who actually lifted a book off the, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica off the shelf and discovered what truth was. Critical literacy is becoming very important. Also, I, I came in at the end of the first session and was astonished by the number of greater public schools represented. Well, um, a relative of mine went to... Um, um, I've wrote it down somewhere. Oh, should I say it? Repton School. Had a ghastly time. I hated it very much. If you go to Wikipedia, I don't know if it's still there, you will discover so much did he hate Repton School that he actually doctored the entry for Repton School on the internet, and you will discover that Lionel Blair was head teacher there in the 1970s. <laughs> of course he was. Well, I don't know. It might be. Of course, I don't think he was. But... The, the, the act of being literate, the act of reading, is now so deeply embedded with the act of questioning veracity, of understanding signals of truth, that actually the questioning and the, 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 the truth-seeking activity is now part of what it means to be literate. Um, and what I observed in my school was that actually the philosophy activity which was happening with seven- and eight-year-olds actually aided their ability to perceive veracity in terms of their reading activity. That critical literacy skill, which is now part of core literacy, actually was aided by their philosophical activity. The second element of that change, that dynamic which is occurring at the moment, is around the sociability of reading. And it's very interesting that, you know, as I said, reading, having gone from being a social activity to a private activity, is now re-emerging as increasingly social. One of the things I did this morning, I went to a, a, a book prize, and it's called the Carnegie Prize, Book Prize for Teenagers. Um, 80,000 teenagers had formed reading groups across the country to read books. These books, extraordinary. This, and this has emerged in the past four or five years. And there's a huge thing at the moment, whether it's literary festivals or whatever, going on around people wanting to talk about what they're reading. Now, that's a very soft end of a spectrum which actually is making reading highly interactive. The, mo the, the hardest end of that is kind of gaming on the internet, where actually the narrative is no longer linear, where you, the reader, are the actor and the writer, and actually the act of reading is no longer seen as being something received, but actually it is seen as something deeply creative, and people are expressing this in a variety of ways. And the key way in which they wish to do this is through sociability. Now... Again, in terms of reading and the way in which it's taught and supported, that's quite hard 
for a lot of traditional um, pedagogical methodologies to fully grasp. You know, the concept of silent reading, when you brought your book into the classroom and sat there in stony silence for an hour, very different to the concept of reading which is sociable, which is interactive. Which is, so how, how do you begin to reconcile that? Well, what came through very strongly from the conversation with the teachers who'd been involved in the philosophy work in the school was that actually the children had developed collaborative and caring um, activities as within their group learning. And actually the sharing of ideas, the discussion of common concepts, was actually done in a careful and a sharing way. Now that's really important if you think about that concept of reading as becoming sociable because when you express ideas, when you express your opinion or your experience of reading activity, you make yourself very vulnerable. What was happening through that activity was actually the children, the young people in that group, were being given the skills to express ideas in a way which wasn't tentative, but actually gave them a degree of security because they, they understood that they would be respected and supported. So, my argument is this, that actually philosophy for children isn't a discrete thing, well certainly not in the way in which it was applied and in which I've seen it work, but actually it bled into the way in which children developed their core learning activities, their core literacy activities. And my tactical observation for you is this, the curriculum is currently being reviewed, as you know, and there are gross inconsistencies in the way in which that review is being undertaken, and you know, it's exciting, there are opportunities for all of us, don't know what's going to come out the other end. However, it will be smaller, it will be tighter, it will be much, much more succinct as a document. And absolutely, um, you know, the, context, the content of the curriculum will be a freer market, and we can all argue for the place of philosophy in there. However, I would suggest that tactically, one of the strongest things you can do is to associate it with those core abilities to participate in society, those core skills, those literacy skills, which enable every child to participate in society. Because the stronger and more um, uh, closely you appropriate it to those skills, the stronger it will be appreciated by schools and by the teaching community as something which really enables young people to, to participate in society and to fulfil their potential. And as I say, from my experience and from what I've seen, it really does through the way in which it equips young people as literate people with literacy appropriate for today. Thanks. Jonathan, thank you, thank you uh, very much. Your point's well taken about uh, uh, folding philosophy uh, and philosophical type inquiry into, uh, into uh, uh, all dimensions of what's done in, uh, done in school. I'm thinking particularly of this idea of, the, of this uh, English uh, baccalaureate, I know which uh, John has been quite critical about. But uh, uh, I, I see grounds for encouragement in the fact that things like history, um, uh, history, classics, uh, languages actually have their place. There's a solid place for humanities in, to terms, in the framework of what Michael Gove has set out. And all those are possible headings, as well as English literature, obviously, in which we could actually insert imaginatively critical thinking um, and, let's say, philosophical uh, inquiry. So I think there are positive developments and opportunities to take and I absolutely agree that some, I personally think there are some grounds for optimism at the moment. Uh, John may well differ. Uh, John is, uh, is, is Emeritus Professor of the Philosophy of Education uh, in the University of London. John, the floor is yours. Thanks, Lark. <clears throat> well, don't start me on EBAC, please, because that's the last thing. But um, I'll just stick to philosophy for children. And uh, I, I don't have any firm views on, the, um, on whether young people in the upper years of the secondary school should do philosophy. I think some of them do get 
drawn towards big questions in their later teens, questions about how they should spend their lives, about whether they should live for themselves or for others, about social injustice, relationships, the, the, uh, the power of art, and so on. Um, unlike younger children, these people have had years of acculturation into the concepts and other ideas which are relevant to these areas. And they're now ready to reflect on these ideas and see which of them pass muster. And it would be good, I think, to see discussions on such things in the curriculum, at least for those inclined that way. I'm, I'm less sure uh, about how far it should be compulsory for all. And I think it's often been assumed in this argument so far, but it, it needs to be argued through. I don't know what the arguments would be. But all this, I think, is a very far cry from, for, from philosophy for six-year-olds. And it's in primary schools that philosophy for children is now all the rage. Now, I'm talking about it as a subject <coughs> that children in some classes have to do. It's compulsory for them. They can't opt out of it. Um, and it's important to, to remember that, I think. Here, I think the case for, for philosophy is far less cogent. Um, I've recent, recently participated in some of this work, as well as reading around the topic, and, but I, I remain unconvinced that philosophy has a place in primary education. So I'm sorry to be a, papa poop, a party pooper at this end of the evening, but uh, there it is, I'm afraid. Um, broadly, there are, there are two sorts of um, philosophy for children on offer. The, the most common kind, <coughs> which we've heard about, leaves most of the running to the children themselves. It's they who vote on the question they want to discuss, and uh, 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 having listened to, usually listen to a stimulus story. And I think there's, there's, there's a lot of good things in this kind of pedagogy. Um, it it um, helps children, as people have said, to collaborate with each other, to learn to conduct their discussions in a civilized way, listening to each other, not interrupting, and so on. And it's not surprising that this spills over into other areas of the curriculum, as people have said. Um, but <coughs> all this may have precious little to do with philosophy. For one thing, <coughs> there is nothing to stop children um, choosing a purely factual question. It's they who choose by, ma by majority vote. They often choose questions about things that have happened in the story, what happens to the characters in the story, and so on. Uh, and they discuss it. And, and now, this isn't at all surprising, really, because no one has taught them any philosophy, so why should we expect them to ask philosophical questions? And they're unlikely to find out what philosophy is very, very often from their teacher, assuming that she, like most teachers of philosophy for children, has only had a few days training in learning and teaching the subject, often two days, often less than that. I heard recently that someone had three hours training in teaching the subject. Imagine someone who had two or three days of, of, of training in learning Russian and teaching Russian, for instance, and then being let loose in the class of seven-year-olds. Well, it, it wouldn't really make sense, and there's a question as to how far it makes sense in philosophy. Um, now, the second uh, sort of philosophy for children is less widespread. Um, but here, the, the teachers are on the whole philosophy graduates. And they partly use the same kind of pedagogy, um, 
which, as I say, is, is in many ways impressive pedagogy, as the other group, but they're less attached to pupil choice of question. They don't go for children voting so much. And, and they steer the children rather more. There's more, more teacher direction. Uh, and uh, they introduce children often to the sort of, sort of topics which they've worked on as undergraduates in um, uh, universities, on identity and so on, um, but in a highly simplified version. We've had some examples tonight. Now, one problem with this kind of more academic philosophy, which we haven't properly discussed this evening, is what it is for, um, what it's aiming at. Um, like, um, like maths or geography, it seeks to induct learners into its own specialized ways of thinking. Um, but we still need a further reason be beyond that as to why this induction into a specialized way of thinking is a good thing. And the trouble is, I think, that the, in the established curriculum, um, we've come to take specialized induction into disciplines like maths and geography for granted. We just assume it's a good thing. We, we don't often discuss, ask the question, why learn maths? We just assume it's a good thing as long as somebody is being inducted into the specialist way of thinking. And I think philosophy uh, in schools of this sort profits by this um, taken for grantedness. But like other subjects, it still stands in need of further justification, and we still need to know what it is for, and I'll come back to this in a moment. The second problem is this, um, and this links up with a point which Simon made earlier about uh, progression. Um, we're not short of, of isolated uh, comments by older primary children, like, um, as in the Nightwaves program that Peter was, and uh, Philip were in the other night, um, what is existence? in a class on um, whether objects exist if we can't perceive them. Um, but one swallow does not make a philosophical summer. Um, we need to know not about lively one-off comments, but about philosophical progress over a longer time span. And also philosophical progress not only for um, Kevin, Alice, Noah and Felix, but for all the children in the class that we, that, that we didn't hear about. Um, in other academic subjects like maths or geography, we have tried, tried and tested progressive routes from key stage one through to pre-university level. Uh, as far as I know, these don't exist in philosophy for children. Uh, now, this may be, I don't know, but it's a question which I think ought to be discussed more. It may be that philosophy is not the kind of subject in which one begins by paddling and then by swimming with um, water wings in the shallow end and then moving into deeper water. Um, um, typically, as I hinted earlier, um, uh, an interest in philosophical reflection comes with adolescence or later. And typically, too, one plunges straight into a deep pool of confusion uh, and spends the next few years gradually sorting oneself out. I think that there is still a powerful case for saying that philosophy may not be for the very, very young. Um, so there are problems, I think, about aiming at induction into an academic discipline, if that's what it's about. But sometimes, and this brings me to the aim of the subject again, sometimes philosophy... Uh, for children advocates of this more academic kind say that its aim is to promote children's reasoning abilities 
to teach them the fourth R of reasoning. Uh, and you also find this kind of justification in the other wing of, of, um, of philosophy for children. There's a, a lot of emphasis on thinking, critical thinking, judgment, and these sorts of things. Uh, again, a lot of these things have come up tonight. But I think there's a problem here too, um, especially for philosophers. It's really important to, to encourage ch children to become, to become good reasoners. Um, I take that as read. I, 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 I take that as as what should run through any decent primary or secondary education. Um, perhaps it doesn't, perhaps there's too much emphasis on facts, as Anthony was saying, but, but it should run through everything. Um, also, I don't ignore the contribution that philosophy for children can make to improving children's reasoning abilities, if indeed uh, there's evidence that it does, I think there is. But my main point is that philosophical reasoning is not the only sort of reasoning. We reason about politics, we reason about practical problems, about relationships, about artistic preferences, uh, and so on. And, and not all of this by any means is, is philosophical. If we're serious about improving children's, um, uh, um, primary children's reasoning in fields like these, as well as in the more academic subjects, we should go for more direct and obvious ways of doing it. It's simply, I think, confusing uh, to talk about philosophy if all we mean is reasoning. Now, it's hard to understand this current vogue for philosophy for children, I think, without taking account of, and this brings us to policy issues, I suppose, without taking into account the changes in school funding over the last 20 years since, um, since local management of schools in 1990. Since that time, schools have become able to, to, to commission their own in-service providers. And, and there'd been no shortage of suitors, often on sexy and counterintuitive topics um, like multiple intelligences, um, brain-based learning, and yes, philosophy for children. If you, if you had someone offering reasoning for children, would they have so much effect? I'm not so sure. All these have attracted a lot of media attention, for instance, press articles on um, six-year-old Socrates and so on, and whole industries have been built up around them. Philosophy for children can now be a very profitable business. I'm not saying that it's... is financial by any means. Um, um, a passionate interest in the subject is likely to be a, a much more important reason behind it. But it is a business. There's no doubt about that. Um, from a policy point of view, one concern that I have is that primary schools are often not in a good position to assess the claims made by the providers who are battering on their doors. And this applies in the present context to the vogue for philosophy classes. Schools are likely to find much of the pedagogy appealing. They'll be impressed by claims that philosophy classes bear fruit in children's thinking and attitudes in other parts of the school. But they may not be in a good position to know whether or not what they're being sold is really philosophy or whether they would be better putting more resources into directly developing children's reasoning abilities in all sorts of areas. Thank you very much.
you very much. Thank you very much, John. It did prompt the question in my mind, what's in a name uh, when it comes to philosophy? Um, uh, we've got 20 minutes, uh, just about 20 minutes. Um, I'll do what moderators always ask. Please keep it short and sweet. Um, Who would like to kick off with a question? Gentleman at the back in the blue. Yes. Thank you. You just wait for the mic. Um, this is a question for Philip Bond. Um, on just on your comments about the relationship and the uh, potential for uh, philosophical inquiry really to occur in RE and citizenship. Um, from my experience as someone who predominantly teaches RE but has also taught citizenship, I have found that the national curriculum framework, at least from Key Stage 3, does provide some kind of means in terms of in policy and means through which this kind of inquiry can occur. However, I'm quite, I think that is the case as from what you have said, that religions provide a basis of an argument that we can kind of relate to. What concerns me is that in citizenship, I don't know if there are other citizenships uh, teachers here, I don't find that so much to be the case. I find it to be the case that um, you're told this is true. And, oh sorry, I'm keeping it. Oh, sorry, I'll get no, I, understand, yeah. I understand the point, I think. You're saying citizenship classes assume citizenship's a good thing mm. rather than explore why it is. Well, I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think that, um, I tend to think our British society is in cultural trouble. And I think, I think the cultural trouble British society is in is very clear and very evident. And it's, it's because we've abandoned norms. And it's very clear, particularly for those at the bottom of society, that norms are absolutely crucial. And norms are crucial for raising children. And we forgot that children uh, need norms, not just norms of behavior, but norms of, I don't even like the word values, but norms of principles, the grand behavior that lead to human flourishing. And so um, <clears throat> when a society is in trouble, what you see is, is it attenuates all the structures that used to be around family, other institutions, start to atrophy, start to fracture. We're now approaching a situation in our country where nearly half of the children are born into families where they'll only have two parents uh, present for on average three years. And we know the outcomes for that are lethal, lethal for those children. So, so what I think is, is important is, is that actually normative education around principles is available to people because everybody recognises it, and children especially. I mean, I tend to, dis, uh, to disagree with John's um, uh, remarks earlier because I actually think children aren't confused, actually. The children really think they're in an objective world and uh, they find that objective world wondrous and mysterious, which is why they read the books they do, but they're not confused by it. They're in, entranced by it. And I think that, therefore, the education for children, I think it does need to be different. Here I agree with John. I think it's very different from kind of an adult or a teenage philosophy should we we don't we haven't even begun to think how we might take that seriously but I do think we need taking it seriously and I think I disagree with John even more profoundly uh, because I actually think unless we answer these questions in, the whole of our education produces kind of assumptions that we then can't follow in practice it's like Alistair McIntyre's book in After Virtue where he said the sailors from 
mutiny on the bounty landed on these islands and men and women ate separately and the sailors said why do you eat separately they said we don't know so suddenly they all started eating together <laughs> and that destroyed the whole social and structural system now what's interesting is human social and structural systems always grow up as a response to needs and dangers within their environment and we're in a situation in my view where we're abandoning everything that recognizes danger and recognises health. And I think we've got to have that within our educational systems. Now, it sounds to me like you're a good religious studies teacher. So, um, so I think that's very good. And I think you're right about citizenship. It comes from New Labour. It comes from an idea that we can have managerialism without value. Myself, I don't really even believe necessarily in the national curriculum. So I'm very, uh, I think it's, I think Pupils' needs will vary, what people need to teach will vary. The most important thing is to be taught by a good, charismatic teacher and to have teachers of different viewpoints. And I think that's the key factor in human advancement. Okay. Philip, I, I might so, you so, 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 so I guess that would, hopefully you feel that has answered yeah. your, your question. John, your name's taken in vain a couple of times. Do you, do you want to yeah. come back? And well, I only just say that um, uh, 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 I agree there's all sorts of things wrong with the national curriculum. I mean, one of the things wrong with it is that it's, it starts from discrete subjects. I mean, we think of the curriculum in terms of um, mathematics, science, um, geography, and these sorts of things. Um, I'm not saying that science shouldn't be taught. I'm, I'm saying that, that this is the way we think of planning the curriculum. Um, and in a way, philosophy, um, philosophy for children benefits for this, because it's another discipline and a high-status discipline, which is being added to the long list of disciplines. Um, that's not where we should start. We should start with what education's for. I agree. With Big that. questions about what education's for. Uh, asking questions about, you know, uh, is education there to help children to lead a flourishing life? Is it to help them to become good citizens? Is it to help them to become um, workers and so on? These sorts of questions. And then see what these aims involve in t further down the line in terms of the sort of understanding they need and the dispositions they need and so on. Perhaps philosophy in some ways, in some contexts, may come into the picture. It probably will. But that's where we should start, rather than thinking in terms of a subject and justifying our subject to the hilt um, against other subjects. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be very mm. sympathetic to that. Mm. I think education is about the good, basically. Right. Jonathan? Mm. Sorry, Jonathan, do you want to come in on this no. question? No, I'm just right enjoying this interview. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Okay, another question. Uh, gentleman, right at the back. Yep. Thank you. My, my question is for John White. I wonder whether you think Rory McIlroy uh, should have been learning golf at two. Should he have been learning? Um, he probably was. Wasn't he? he? I mean, well, he was. Yes. As, as was Tiger Woods. Now, you might not have called it golf at the time. My oh, point is simply that the yeah. process might be different from what you regard as philosophy, but actually yeah. it's a skills grounding that can be started perhaps earlier than, uh, than full academic level. Yeah. Um, Yes, I, 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 I can, I can um, um, ac um, accept that, and I can uh, um, accept that ch um, ch um, children, uh, I mean, it's a great thing that children um, are, are encouraged to reason from the age of three or four onwards. I mean, my little grand um, grandson is an example. I mean, he's, he's into all sorts, of, all sorts of questions, and not philosophical questions, but he's always reasoning, yes, but, and, and so on. Um, now, um, we sh I, th I think there's good reasons from the, from the aims of education why we should 
develop those things in terms of children's flourishing and, and becoming good citizens and so on. Uh, and um, uh, perhaps, um, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not ruling this out, perhaps um, that can be a very early stage in a development towards uh, um, you know, getting inside academic philosophy, which would be, be the equivalent of the um, um, kind of um, high-class high golf that you're talking about now. Um, but um, the, the, the argument would still have to be made, I think, and I, I don't think it has yet been made. Um, thank you. John, anyone else on, would like to know this question? Okay. Uh, <coughs> a number of people. Um, the lady over there had caught my eye. Um, Angela had had a hand up for a little while before, and then there was somebody <coughs> back. We'll probably give the, the lady there in the blank. And we'll, depending how well, what brisk dispatch we can deal with these questions, we might be able to fit in a couple more. So, yeah, okay. Um, this is just a question for the table, so whoever wants to answer. Um, do you think that a case for philosophy for children can be made by its being instrumental to any type of democracy? Because how can anyone participate meaningfully in a democracy when they've not deliberated about the concepts that it's supposed to embody, such as truth and freedom and justice, which are quite abstract concepts? And philosophy may not be the only way to reason about these things, but it seems to be the best suited because it has the most amount of literature on the subject. Um. I tend to agree with you. I mean, I, I tend to think that the, the primary question of any group life is how should we live together? You know, uh, and that is the one of the primary um, organising questions um, for, for our polity. So I think, I mean, I, I tend to agree that we don't want to instrumentalise philosophy, say, oh, it's another important subject and add it to the curriculum. <coughs> Quite rightly, I think the curriculum is being narrowed. And the curriculum is being narrowed, in my view, it should be as minimal as possible to allow all sorts of rooms for, room for innovation. But what that shouldn't be is, is to allow sort of dross in. What it should be allowed to do is to allow sort of talent and, and, and excellence in. And I, 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 I tend to agree with you that, that one of the arguments you could make that would persuade the teaching community is exactly that question. How should we live? What are the principles that should govern us? And what's interesting about raising questions like justice, etc., is that you can't just assume you're just. You, you automatically have to leave behind current practices to ask if they're just. And that's what, dif what is different about philosophy. It's not bound to the empirical settlement we already have. Else like to go yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's absolutely spot on. I think actually to position philosophy most effectively within the life of a school, it needs to be viewed both instrumentally and intrinsically. It needs to, and, I th and I think what's refreshing about the conversation I've listened to this afternoon is that it's been a celebration of the power of both the instrumental potential of philosophy, but also the content and the excitement about the ideas and the history of idea. John? Yeah, just... Just to say yes, I, I mean, there's a, a case, I think, if um, things like autonomy and equality, political equality are important ingredients of democracy, then um, every citizen should have some in introduction to those notions and understand what they are. But um, whether or not um, philosophy is the thing you know, best suited, in your words, to promote that is a further question. Um, I mean, perhaps it, it has a role, perhaps, perhaps with older children, but there's all sorts of ways in which you develop, um, develop democracy in, 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 
ideas of democracy and so on in children through, through participation in all sorts of projects and collaborative activities and so on without them coming anywhere near philosophy in, in the early years. Perhaps you can gradually introduce these ideas, um, I suspect, a bit later on, but I, I haven't got... John, can, can I ask John yeah, yeah, yeah. a question? Because yeah. one of the things which seems to be bugging you is that philosophy is ill-suited to summative assessment. Summative assessment? Well, in as much as, I mean, you know, you, you described how... I, I, you, your criticism seemed to be around the difficulty of relating the philosophical, um, the, the skills associated with philosophical methodology, relating those to grades in attainment and so forth, and actually... I haven't, I haven't mentioned that. I haven't no, but that seems to be underpinning. Is that a particular issue that... Um, I, I don't think so, no, I haven't okay. thought about well, that. The sense I get is that John's arguing it's too difficult for kids, and, and I think, I think, um, I don't think that's true, I think, but I do tend to agree it would have to be done quite differently. But I don't think it's too difficult for children to ask how we should organise things. Okay, thank you. Um, Angela and then the lady with the scarf um, behind, yes. I'll, if you can take them, I'll take them consecutively. So if you yes. give your, do your question immediately after Angela, and then we'll look to the panel. So this is mainly a question for John. I'm also interested in what Jonathan and Philip have to say. Um, John, I found it very helpful that to have a, a sceptical voice here. I think that's helped clarify the discussion. It follows on from Jonathan's last point. I, I clearly understood you to be saying that one of your concerns uh, in the video that Peter showed us at the beginning is that you, you haven't got evidence of progress in these students. You did use that term progress. And I'm just interested, do you think that all things studied at school need to be monitored for progress, or do you think and do you think that's essential to stop a discussion just degenerating into vapid whiffle-waffle? Or do you think that there could be um, value in just sort of, a, you know, the joy of discussion, the joy of learning? Philip's quoted Aristotle, I think. Uh, many times. Yeah, many <laughs> times. Uh, because I, I've witnessed philosophy shot classes and Sapere and philosophy zone, and they all had one thing in common, and that was this just zest of the, the children for, for discussion, and I felt that the liberation from tests was part of that zest. So I can see, understand your concern, but I'm interested. I'll, I'll ask you to just hold back on the answer to that. Yes, the lady there, I promised. Yes. Please. Right. Um, I think the main problem is not whether children can do philosophy, but whether can we make philosophy obligate, um, compulsory into schools? Because uh, if we do that, how can we is to be taught or to be practiced, um, and can all teachers do that? I mean, there are some technical issues that we have to take to be refined in order to avoid instrumentalization of philosophy or having the idea that philosophy is only a particular thing and not something else. In that case, we make it, uh, we may move away from what philosophy really is. Okay. I just want to know what the response is. Right. Thank you. I'm going to put those to the panel. Uh, I fear there may not be time to take any more questions afterwards, <coughs> for which apologies in advance. John, Andrew's question is to you, so, um, and then um, we'll take them, and yeah. then Jonathan, and then um, Philip. Well, um, <coughs> about um, progress or progression, I, I mean, um, it depends if you, what you want. I was assuming a context where um, the more academic um, 
people involved in philosophy for children are concerned with induction in, into a discipline like uh, on a on the same sort of model as mathematics or whatever. And there, um, it wouldn't simply be enough in mathematics to sort of, I don't know, have some sort of one-off uh, ex um, exciting lesson. One would expect some kind of progression through the subject, through, through arithmetic to algebra to calculus and so on. Uh, and um, uh, uh, the question I'm asking is, is, um, is there anything like this in philosophy? Um, uh, as far as I know, there's not. And, and does this raise a problem? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I have more questions than answers. Um, on the joy of discussion, yeah. I mean, I've been to um, cl um, classes of both sorts, the Sapri sort and the um, um, philosophy shop classes, and it's wonderful to see how, how a lot of the children are involved. I'm not sure if they're all involved, but a lot of the children are, are, are really involved in that. Um, but um, if... Um, if discussion is so wonderful, which it is, and, and so joyous, which, which it can be, why only philosophy? You can discuss all sorts of things. Why don't we kind of broaden our horizons and teach children, get children discussing all sorts of things, including perhaps philosophy, but, but why stress philosophy? Okay. John? Well, sorry, we're not going to have time for, because I'd like to get all the panel to be able to answer both these questions. John, did you want to say anything about the other lady's question as, as well? Or, I'll, I'll move on to Jonathan. Um, I'll leave it to Yes, okay. Jonathan. Um, okay. Um, the, the answer to the other question about making it happen everywhere um, the, 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 is, is actually related to what's going on at the moment in terms of education policy. The landscape's changing. It's, as I said, it's, it's, uh, it's, going to be a it's going to be like the Wild West out there in schools to a certain extent over the next few years. Um, and I think you know, schools will be able to choose what they do. They're much, much more freedom. And the challenge to the philosophy community is, is its positioning within, within that. Now, part of that new landscape, he said trying to sound possible, um, will be the fact that actually the traditional mechanisms of grading against the national curriculum, you know, level fours by key station and that kind of thing, will go. We're going to have to ha reinvent the narrative of a child's learning. And I think what's very interesting in that context is actually this issue about whether assessment can narrate the development of philosophical understanding and the strengthening of philosophical questioning skills and so forth. And I think there, there is an exciting opportunity, until everything crystallises, which you probably will in two years' time, and there'll be a, another big national curriculum with strategies, in that we've got a, a narrow window when actually we can create and we can lobby and we can try things out. So, you know, it's an experiment and a very exciting period in terms of this meeting setting an agenda for those of us and those of you who are passionate about the opportunities which this... Uh, uh, yeah, it's an amazing moment to make the most of it. Um, yeah, uh, two questions. Philosophy is different. I, I taught critical thinking and almost always I thought it was really very poor and didn't work. And I taught philosophy and I thought it almost always did work. And the reason why philosophy is different is the object of philosophy is different from the object of English, the object of biology, the object of any other object, because it's an object whose object is objectivity itself. Whereas the other, the other uh, disciplines all have derived teleologies. It, they study English because English is...